Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and Breakout Con 2019. Episode 204, Creating Engaging Characters. Presented by Camden Wright, Sharang Biswas, Kat Raman, and Emily Briggs, who also moderated this panel. some moderating that's awesome uh, i'll probably also be talking a little bit because i've got thoughts that's awesome um, <laughs> I'm, totally okay with that. I'm gonna have to ask you guys to introduce yourselves a bit because i don't okay. have bios here that's okay because yeah. i am a prepared and professional yes. individual <laughs> i'll have my colleague here and that's okay. all the great things they have done and then i'll tell i did some cool. great yeah, yeah. i'm gonna try and keep pretend. my phone <laughs> present and keep track of some sort of timing because i know what i'm doing it's like garfield minus garfield uh, okay. <laughs> Uh, yeah, again, I do invite anyone who'd like to, to move forward. We're not super loud people. Well, I'm not, okay, yeah, sometimes I'm pretty loud. Uh, let's <laughs> I'm not lie here. Loud as well. uh, my name is Emily Griggs. I am apparently now moderating this panel, as well as being <laughs> a panelist. I am a freelance tabletop RPG writer and illustrator. Some of my current writing work is on Supplements for Vampire the Masquerade 5th Edition and um, Exalted 3rd Edition. And I've worked on other Onyx Path projects, as well as some indie projects, and one completed game of my own called Rest, which is available in the gift shop down below. And I am joined by two out of three other lovely panelists who are going to introduce themselves. Cool. Let's go first. Go. All right. I know that. You go first. Okay. You go first. All right, fine, yeah, I'll go first. Um, I'm Camden Wright. Um, I have created a game called One Child's Heart, which is about uh, mental health care professionals that have a chance to enter into traumatic memories of a child and help them reframe that. Uh, and aside from that, I wrote on Torg and Savage Worlds, so I'm on all ends of the spectrum. Um, and I'm uh, just really happy to be here today. And really happy to be sitting next to you. Oh, sure, sure. Uh, hi, I'm Kat Raman. Uh, I run a lot of games online, uh, and I'm currently getting close to kickstarting a game called Red Carnations on a Black Grave. Yep. Thank you. Uh, which is about Doom Trench Proto Communists, so it's going to be a big hit. <laughs> and uh, I've written a couple other games. Uh, one is a sci-fi hack called Rovers, which you can get on my website. And uh, yeah, 
Oh, and then there's the queer subculture game that I'll never actually play. But (laughs) I wrote it, and people like that. You've also got a great outfit. Oh, thanks. Like your hat and scarf matching perfectly. It's mostly because it's cold. Okay, well, it it looks really great. Your your country is lovely. It is cold. If you're listening to this by a recording later, you are missing out. Um, Okay, so this panel is about creating engaging characters. So... um, my panel description, which I wrote and totally remember, talks about uh, characters that will engage everyone at the table and help tell amazing stories that everyone will enjoy. So I guess to start off, I'm going to ask our lovely panelists, what do you think makes a character engaging? You want to go first? <laughs> go ahead, come sure. Well, so do you mean engaging in terms of engaging uh, as a dynamic character that's in the story, or do you mean engaging in that you're also bringing people along? Because those can be two different things. Yeah. Uh, I, th- I think I remember Bill White once said something like, uh, there's a difference between a, a good player at a table and a great player at a table. And a good player at the table is someone that's like, a, they may have like an awesome character in, in mind, and they play the hell out of that character, but they may not bring anybody else with them. Yeah. And a great player will bring other people with them. Yeah. And like everybody can be both. I've yeah. been both, literally, <laughs> sometimes in the same game. Um, in terms of um, creating an engaging character, I think a lot comes down to um, my own personal hobby horse, which is plot as character, because <laughs> screenwriting really has a lot to say. Um, a lot of times, a character needs to be defined around some kind of conflict, right? Internal, external, however. I just got, I just came from Vast and Starlet, and my character was a revolutionary professor who had been in jail now. Um, and, you know, we never got too much into it, but, you know, I, I could see that their conflict was entirely like, you know, the revolution failed, but I, was, I still want to carry on. Yeah. Um, and so that actually had a chance to block because this would be a character that could potentially be like, you know, well, yes, you had an idea, but my idea is yeah, better because revolution. And, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think I was going somewhere with this. I'm not sure exactly where I ended up. Um, I think you made a good point at the beginning there where creating an engaging character is both about creating an engaging story with that character and especially because this is not just creating an engaging character, but sort of just by definition creating an engaging role-playing character, that the engagement of engaging with others. Yeah, and uh, you know, there's a lot of improv technique that you can incorporate into here to not block, to always be looking to, you know, to try and yes but or no and yeah. um, other players. And that will all help. But if you have that, that strong central concept, uh, that will help right off the bat. Then that doesn't mean you have to yeah. at the start because it can develop and you don't know where you're going to end up when you start writing stuff down, but you end up in a place. Yeah. Do you have more for what makes an engaging character for you? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think when you strip down um, all of the powers and the setting and the genre and everything else, I think the characters that are a reflection of humanity instead of a caricature of humanity um, that is the core foundation of whatever you're playing and if you could manage to capture that you're gonna wind up with somebody that is real and reacts to the world and uh, is gonna engage hey I'm so sorry 
Oh, no worries. I one more. my schedule. Uh, <laughs> happens to the best of us. Okay, David, save time just <laughs> I'm yes. foreign. I'm foreign. Absolutely. We don't have time in my country. <laughs> Take it and run. Yep. Okay, we have been joined with our, by our last panelist, who is now going to introduce uh, himself. Yes, okay. thank you. Oh, there. Uh, I'm Sharon Biswas. I'm a game gun writer and artist based in New York City. Um, what else do we say? Great, uh, that is what I do. <laughs> Any key projects? Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm working on Jason Pietre's next um, Kickstarter. I'm a strategy goal writer. Uh, it's about sci-fi space politics. Every session ends with a vote in the Galactic Assembly. Uh, and I am uh, Lucian Khan, and I just got a grant to make a book of LARPs and tabletop role-playing games about sex, um, which is hopefully going to release next year. We're going to publish that with Palgrain Press. Uh, and if any of you are interested in writing, talk to me and we can <laughs> hook you up with setting a submission because we're curating it and taking eight projects and stuff, so, yeah. Nice. Um, so we've just been talking about what we think makes a character engaging. We've talked a bit about um, sort of engaging with the real core aspect of humanity and we've talked a bit about um, just sort of lightly touched on, and we'll get back to it, uh, improv techniques and getting other people involved through blocking, or not blocking, and using yes ands and no bots. Yeah, yeah. Do you think you've got anything to add about kind of what you think makes a character engaging at the table? Um, I think the most important thing is if you are feeling your character. Um, like, actually, though, like, so often I've played games where I'm like, I start a character and then I'm like, I'm not feeling this character, and then it's not only engaging because you're not putting emotion and investment into it, right? Uh, and I think, as a GM, for example, I think it's encouraged if someone's not feeling their character and they want to change something about it, mm -hmm. it's totally cool to be like, yeah, whatever, change something about it, right? Yeah. And that's, that is more important than, no, you used Ray of Frost before or something and you don't have Acid Splash or whatever, right? Yeah. Uh, if I'm running that kind of game. Uh, and of course in a freeform game it's a bit more leeway to do that. Yeah. But um, I think that is important. And then there are other things that we can talk about later, but yeah, that's the, I think the key. Yeah, and that's something I think that as role players sometimes we don't take advantage of. If you're a novelist and you get halfway through your novel and you say, oh, this character actually isn't really speaking to me, you can change the character mm -hmm. and you can go back and rewrite. And yeah, yeah. I think you can do the same thing in role-playing games with everyone's permission. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's sometimes this this need to stick to the canon you've already established, but it's you and your like five friends at max here. Like you can change things. You can retcon. Yeah, and of course that's, that is different if you're like playing a tournament game, obviously, yeah. right? Like if you're playing, I don't know if that happens more, but like Lair Assault, which is a D and D thing that used to happen where it's like a tournament. You're like trying to get through a dungeon and and you compete. Obviously, that's different. The goals of that ludic moment are different um, but here um, you know if you're just like I want to have a good narrative story that's yeah like... so one thing I definitely want to focus on in this panel and I'm the moderator now so I guess I can do this <laughs> is, uh, giving people both players and GMs some really practical tools to bring back to their table to make sure that the characters they're playing become more engaging and I want that both in terms of creating like a more engaging narrative and also engaging other players at the table with their character. So if you were talking to a player and you're trying to give them a few tips for how to make take their character from pretty good to really great when it comes to that kind of engagement, what kind of tips would you give? And uh, let's start at the other end of the table. Oh, okay, I get to start again. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that one of the things that can be um, really valuable is um, what uh, what do you want 
and what are you willing to pay to get it? And I think if you can, you know, if you have that kind of overarching sense of uh, this is what this character wants more than anything, and this is the cost to myself or the people around me, um, and you're able to articulate that in a way that does not take agency away from the other people at your table, <laughs> that's, a, that's a great place to, to begin. Yeah, actually, uh, I was going to go kind of the same way. Um, you know, the John Rogers uh, little uh, monomic, uh character development. What do you want? Why can't you have it? Why do I give a damn? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think all three of those can be really useful to kind of map out when you're trying to create a character. Because what do I want is, yeah, I mean, like you said, that's the, that's the key thing. That's the conflict you want to have, goal. That's going to engage people just because you, it's like you know what you do. What do I want? Well, I, I want I want to defeat the Galactic Overlord, okay. Mm -hmm. uh, but the not, why can't you have it thing is super important yeah. uh, and then why do I care is more of an audience question mm -hmm. it's not what you I mean, presumably you care <laughs> I mean presumably because I you know I think we've all had games where you sat down like well I got this pregen okay um, but why why do why should other people care uh, you know and those and how that conflict frames out can be interesting I played a um, I once played a game of Montsegur where Montsegur is a very freeform game where it, all the characters are pregens, but they can go in a lot of different ways. So there's almost no information. And I played the character who is the who is the defender of Montsegur, and in the opening scene, he was involved in an assassination. And I played him very cold and like you know he's of course he's a warrior he can kill these people, but in between that scene and the next scene, I had this idea like, but what if he had decided that like. It was one thing to be a knight and a defender, but now cold-blooded murder is something completely different. And what he had was remorse and no way to solve it. Mm -hmm. and, and understanding, too, that from that remorse meant that he could no longer lead people because he no longer had the confidence in his own ability to decide what was right. Yeah. And that was the scaffolding I could hang a lot of stuff on. And it was a different way to take it. And I was, I was kind of happy. That's what I mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the biggest uh, thing I, if I'm jamming or if I'm even playing, uh, is don't write a lot of backstory. <laughs> uh, right? It's like, which seems like counterintuitive, right? If you, especially if you're in the tradition, if you, if you, for example, are familiar with the big lot conventions like Intercon and things where the, you have 30 pages of character that you must like go through. And I'm like, that's why I don't go to Intercon. Guys, I go to Dreamation. Um, but um, I have always, always found that when I have made a character with a lot of backstory, when the last time I did that was when I was an undergrad, um, because I learned, I'm like, this is useless, um, was that none of that backstory came into play ever, and I forgot it. Because I'm like, oh, right. You know. um, I have found that making lots of backstory is, it could be fun if you want to just do it for enjoyment, that's great, you know, you yeah. do whatever makes you happy. Um, but I, if, if the goal is to like flesh out the character, I would argue that writing extra backstory is unhelpful because you it'll not come into play, the G, you give the GM extra prep to do, you don't do that. If you're in college, okay, maybe you have the time to do that because you know, you don't sleep. Um, and you have the physical capability to not sleep. Um, if you're not in college, you have no time for anything. Um, so, I have always found that the most interesting details, even about the history of a character, always arise at the table. Yeah. Like, you play and then you realize, you know what? 
I think my character is actually a taxidermist. And because, like, you know, after one battle, you're like, yes, I will collect this tentacle because it's a cool thing. And then later you realize, wait, I'm just collecting parts of monsters. Yes, I'm a taxidermist. And that becomes a thing. And that becomes really interesting. Yeah. And, and it becomes more engaging for you because it's not like you decided at the start, yes, his taxidermy career started when he wrote for National Geographic. Yeah. Um, it, it becomes real because you have been doing yeah. that in the game. Yeah. Uh, and that's similarly with, like, relationships that can occur, right? As you play the game, you're like, wait a minute. Yeah, he totally has a long-lost, uh, a long-estranged sister. And this is why he's been reacting this way to all these people. And, like, retconning and things are very powerful, interesting tools. Um, so I always say, write a backstory, like, do, like, a quick paragraph. Like, yeah, my character was married seven times and ate two of his husbands. <laughs> Great. That's all I know. Done. Now let's start playing. And then you're like, oh yes, the two husbands I ate are now growing as fungi in my belly. And that's what's making me feel all these emotions. Awkward you know? emotions, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, think have, I have questions about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's up I want to amplify that point a little. I, yeah. I've had sometimes, I've, I've, I've come in with a character backstory that I thought what I developed kind of on my own. Maybe I didn't wrote it out, maybe I didn't. But the trap that I see a lot with a lot of the people I play that want to play more you know, emotional or emo or however you want to call it games is they write a backstory where all the most interesting story of their character is in the backstory and it is inert it does nothing because there's no connection with anybody else at the table for a long time I've used a technique (coughs) where um, I'll like create a fiasco playset to kick off a campaign mm-hmm. yeah. because it's no stakes I mean I change it so that you're not an emotionally empty shell of me <laughs> <laughs> um, but lived backstory is so much more powerful yeah yeah it's- I think I'd say one of the main reasons as for not establishing this very long backstory is also it cements your character and I'd say one of my tips for creating an engaging character at the table <coughs> is keep your character malleable enough that you can smoosh them around everyone else's characters and envelop all the other characters into yourself. Uh, Because again, you know, role-playing is a collaborative storytelling endeavor. And whether it's a role-playing game or a novel or whatever other form of story, if the story is about four separate people just going off and doing their own thing, it's not really as interesting as four people who each have their own often conflicting goals, but who also have these strong connections to each other. Uh, So when I am writing a long character backstory, I think perhaps the only time you want to do it is when you're writing that backstory collaboratively with everyone else in your group. Maybe not playing it out, though playing it out is always super cool. But bouncing off each other and saying, oh, well, hey, you have a long lost sister. Like, maybe she's my wife. Uh, That would be really cool that we've both lost her. And now we've both got her. adds to that why should you care because of course we care about each other now we've got this this connection and yeah I think that leaving your backstory open not only allows you to add things as the game progresses which gets you more invested in sort of the GM story but it also allows you to invest in other player characters Mm -hmm. and bring them into your story and thus bring you into their story Um, speaking of like sort of actionable tips you, cat, uh, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, you talked a bit about some improv tips, like yes, no. Sure. Um, I mean, yeah, you know, I'm, you, I'm, yeah. yeah, I'm not like Stella Adler or something. You brought them up, so do you want to try York, so define Adler. a couple of those for the audience, just in case uh, they're not Yeah, so, so one of the things that um, people will talk about in improv is to not block. So if somebody rip, rip, creates an idea, 
you're not allowed to just say no because no is no does nothing. No just stops everything. So you are allowed to say yes and, which is generally you know, like if you're doing improv games, that's the most powerful thing. It's like it's like well, you know, I drive a I drive an oil super tanker. Yes, and you're also a bigamist. Yes, and I'm I'm only gay in one of the relationships. Yes, and. So, I mean, you know, obviously that spins out, that can spin out if you're yeah. not careful. And so there needs to be a sort of understanding of the grounding of the world you're going to be in, which is also like a super important thing to do. But, mm -hmm. And of course, we also do want to clarify, no is okay if you're using like the X card. Yes. Right? Oh, yeah, obviously. 100%. A cat didn't obviously. mean like never yeah. say no. No, 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 no. If you're uncomfortable, say no. no. This yeah. is like a general... Yeah. Uh, and no, no, but... As another tool for yeah, and no, no but is like well, I'm a, I'm the captain of a super tanker. You might not know but because like okay, sure, That's but cool. like, and I'm a bigamist. No, but you wanted to be. Yeah, <laughs> or no, but that's the culturally acceptable thing from where I sure. come from, and I stand out by not being a bigamist. Yeah, and and but uh, okay, so I've like wandered into a very weird example because <laughs> um, <laughs> because yeah, I, I'm I'm running on coffee and Danish pastry right now. Uh, <laughs> That the the importance of 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 when somebody says something at the table, and it's not like something that you're gonna X card, though. X card more. <laughs> I, I don't have, X card. I have enough. a DM friend, uh, James Stewart, who um, made what's that cool game about the two sidekicks? Oh, I know. Which 183, one? Day, 183 yeah. days. So you yeah. can go check it out. It's really good. Um, he uses really. He does this really thing, and of course he. He's a software engineer, so he has the means to do this. But when uh, he runs a game, he's like, the first person to use an X card, I will buy them a drink. <laughs> um, because that, like, destigmatizes the X yep. card. Mm -hmm. yep. um, so, yeah. Yeah, I've started adopt saying that you can use it for content. Yeah, yeah. Right yeah. off the bat, you can use it for content. You just yep. don't want this? Sure. Um, right, so if somebody says something and it's not something you're going to X card... Um, to not immediately say, oh, I don't like that, or oh, that seems stupid, but the, yeah. the like, pause, and it's like, if it's something that you, it, it's like, something's bothering you, you can talk about modifying it, and that's, yeah. so that's a no but. Yeah. Uh, and if it's something that makes, if it's something that you suddenly realize you could go in a weird direction with, like, yeah. it's like, like you, like, oh, my, my sister's dead, and like, well, I lost my wife, so. Let's make those one character, yeah. 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 Um, and I love those kinds of techniques because, A, they keep the game flowing, which is always nice, but it's another way to kind of tie everyone together if you're accepting someone else's input. And again, I find that as soon as one of your other players at the table has helped, helped you build your character by giving you a link, by giving you a super tanker, by giving you an idea, that's automatically giving them a reason to invest in your character because they put a little bit of themselves into it. And that's another great answer for the why should I care. Relation maps. Relation maps, those yeah. are great. Very yeah. important. I think that that's, that's an interesting thing because um, there are many games that afford um, solo scenes and many solo scenes, right? Like you can play like, I don't know, Monster Hearts just for solo scenes, mm -hmm. right? But to make engaging characters that other people are going to be interested and invested in, you, you should try and shy away from just doing solo scenes. Solo scenes are great, like, you know, everyone likes solo time. Um, <laughs> but, like, 
having scenes where you can draw in others is important. And you and it, it's great as a player if you can give the GM, because the GM has to, if you're playing a GM game where the GM does a lot of the world building, yeah. um, the GM has a lot to think about and it can get cognitively um, stressful. Um, yeah. Like, I'm bad at running Monster Hearts, even though sexy teen vampires sounds so fun. Um, uh, because it's, it's, it's very hard for me. But as a player, if you can say, oh, and this is why this other player would be in this game. So yesterday, um, I was playing a game of The Sprawl uh, with the creator. It's a cyberpunk powered by the apocalypse game. It's really fun. You should all check it out. It's <laughs> on sale here. Um, and he made me, I, I ended up being the like, corporate wizard, right? I'm like super corporate and I will, like, I'm like cold and awful. Uh, I'm like the head of the science division. Um, and I, but I'm like, okay, so the first scene was me and he's like, okay, now what would you do? And I'm like, well, I want to involve other players. So I'm like, I will call my two consultants that I tend to call when I have issues. That one and that one. And you know, and I, I know I'm tooting my own horn here, but it felt like it was a good way of like involving other yeah. players in the scene easily and quickly. And you just increased your backstory to you guys. Yes, I've used these people. And so that, yeah, that was a good point because we hadn't really established that yeah. as much. But now we've established that we've worked together before, which means they have thoughts about me because I'm a super corporate, cold, you know, terrible person. Terrible so. wizard, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, when I GM some games, uh, when somebody says, oh, I'm going to go do this, I'm like, that's great. Who are you taking with you? There you yeah. go. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually a great transition to my other sort of hypothetical situation. We've been talking about techniques to use as a player when you're creating a character. But let's say you're a GM, storyteller, DM, whatever, and you've got this great group of players that you love because they're all your friends, but they do have this bit of a tendency to each kind of make their own character and do their own thing. And you like the characters individually, and they're good role players, but they don't really tend to talk to each other very much, or they don't tend to get very deep characters. And they're really interested, I'm going to assume full buy-in here, so they are interested in creating more engaging. <laughs> you know, some people just enjoy a beer and pretzels D&D game, where you're yeah. each playing, you know, Hogdar the Smashinator, who's... Yeah, which is a valid way of playing. <laughs> it's totally valid. I've done it, it's great. Um, but let's say you've got that group that's interested, but they're having trouble enacting these techniques themselves. What can you do as a GM? to either like just through things you can say or like active systems you can use to try and encourage those players to create more engaging characters. You've been a bit quiet for a while. Okay. Start again? Yeah, so uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of uh, the session zero where you sit mm -hmm. down and to me it's that, uh, it's that overlap of what you were saying earlier, Emily, about this being a collaborative storytelling event mm -hmm. and um, active consent at the same time. So you've got times where you were making decisions about the world and why you are together and why you care about each other and what your goals are. It gives them uh, an opportunity to to give facts that are absolute <laughs> truths about this world and themselves and the people yeah. around them. And I think that could be really cohesive uh, team building. Yeah. Um, just for one quick pause, um, after this I am going to ask for some questions from the audience so if you want to start thinking about that. And I'll but also listen because they have good things to say. Yes. <laughs> and I have a handsome accent, I've been told. <laughs> I, have, well, I have no good characteristics. <laughs> That's, that's it. That's it. Yeah. Go oh, okay. Ahead. So it's not me. Um, sure. Okay. Fine. Yeah. Like. Um, I. I. It, it depends on the game. Like. Uh, I. I've run as my house game a bunch of. Uh, 
uh, gumshoe games that are kind of super investigative. And for those, I do a lot of like, let's do a session where we play some backstory out that's mm -hmm. going to be somehow relevant. Um, I don't always do a formal R map, but mostly because we've like done a lot of discussion before we sit down and play about who the characters are. Yeah. Um, for other games, I do draw R maps a lot. Um, that's relationship map. Relationship right? map, yeah. Uh, relationship map is just, uh, it's what it says on the tin. It's, it's a map that will show the connections between people and what they want. And there's some games that formally incorporate it into the game, like uh, Smallville or Cortex Plus Drama. Mm -hmm. It's a formal incorporation into the rules of the game. You can't create characters <laughs> without doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, but for any game, it's usually just a good idea just to sketch and like, why do you hate this person? Or this. And that will let you also bring in NPCs that are important. And like, there's the whole apocalypse world thing if you want those PC, NPC, PC triangles mm -hmm. where there's one NPC that means two different things to two different players. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot can just be like you when you're GMing or MCing, like when I'm MC Monster Hearts, I'm on the lookout for when people want to have scenes with each other. And like that's how I'll cue the scenes up together. Is like, okay, so let's do that thing where you and the werewolf get together and like make play out, or, or play D and D. That too. Or play D and D while making out. Ooh. <laughs> that that seems to be the theme of this weekend's convention. Uh, not not I mean in game wise game wise. I mean, I'm not doing anything. Um, I don't want to yum any. I don't want to yuck anybody's yum. So yeah. Um, <laughs> But, yeah, to, because solo scenes are great, and I, if, it is a thing I do a lot, especially in Monster Arts, I seem to always end up where I have a lot of solo scenes, at least early, but I'm always trying to look, like, now that we've established some stuff, like, what do you want, what do you want, why are you talking to this person in homeroom, then let's try and find those scenes, and if a game gives me scene framing authority, which some do in various control, I will use that aggressively as hell. I will frame you into the scene, because that's my job. And you had that point earlier of, as a GM, being able to say, okay, who are you taking with you? Take who you taking with you, because I want to see that, because otherwise it's just me talking, and <laughs> I, I can do a lot of, I do a lot of acting and voice, not acting, but I do a lot of voice acting in, in games, and I do all, I'm, I can be really fascinating. My NPCs talk a lot. It yeah. is how I deliver information to the player characters. I have accepted this. <laughs> yeah, no, seriously, they're all exposition. Well, that's, a, that's a valid point, right? Because like, you're a GM, you want to have fun as well. Sure. And if you're a fun and president character... Right, but it, so. it's not necessarily fun for me to just talk to the players individually every... every yeah, minute, exactly. Um, so something I'm always... Um, or I try and be very keen on, and I feel very starkly when I'm playing, is to... Um, give players that like spotlight moment right like if uh, like it's it's really it's really sad if you have a player who can do this one cool thing but, like doesn't really have a chance to do it or you do it and it's like everyone's like great you did it move on it's like really cool for a player to feel i made this decision of a character and it is coming into play mm. and it could be it could be like Oh, they're, they're like you know their um, darker self move or their sex move or one like mechanic like they just learned the new fifth level spell and they really want to do it. It could be something like that, but it could also be like, oh yeah, remember that random decision you made that your book like uh, talks like a parrot to you um, for some reason because you just wanted that decision like your your grimoire is a parrot book. Um, 
Let's bring that to play. So a bird man comes up and starts talking to your parrot book. <laughs> and like that spotlights a random small mm-hmm. detail that that character made. And I've always found whenever that happens, that's really cool for that player or for me. And when a DM takes that into account, uh, it's like, oh, and then you get more invested into yeah. into the character. Because you're like, oh, the, the things I have put into my character, even the random silly things are important to people, it's interesting, huh, now I'm more engaged in making and into playing that. Um, And I found that to be very um, powerful. And and the the reverse is really sad if you have this big thing that you really want to do, that's that's some games, in some one-shots from some games, you have to, as a DM, it's good to go through the characters you have and be like, this is probably not going to come up in this game. I'm going to just remove that character. Mm-hmm. Because it's really sad if you give a character whose whole shtick is in the downtime, they can build cool mechanical contraptions, but it's a one-shot and you're not going to have downtime. Yeah. So they're, they're, the character's like, I really want to make mechanical things, and then they never do, and then they're like, okay. Never mind. Um, so... Yeah, and you're, so you're kind of saying, as a GM, you can engage like the world with yeah. the characters. Yeah, and, and to try and focus on each character, if you can, give a moment where you can focus on one of their details yeah. in an interesting, like fun way. Yeah, that's a good approach. Um, for myself, one technique I've often used is, no matter what system you're playing in, especially if it's a system that doesn't have a lot of systems, mechanics, for creating intertwined, detailed characters, steal the systems relentlessly from other games. Mm -hmm. Uh, I will make fate aspects for characters I'm never going to play in fate, and I will do them as a session zero where I'm making those aspects with all, with everyone else's characters as well, so we are interconnecting each other to start with. Um, I know a lot of people enjoy Empowered by the Apocalypse bonds, or even systems from LARPs, or things like relationships maps, Mm -hmm. which are, I guess that's not really a game-specific mechanic, but it is effectively a form of mechanic. And I don't think there's really any game out there where you can't just quickly do a little bit of homebrew and tack on another system, which doesn't have to interact mechanically with any other system, but gives players, especially underconfident players who might not be quite as comfortable like going out there and making those connections. It gives them a framework and it gives them an excuse to start building those, building those up with other players. I, I think every game I've written has a list of questions mm. that the players have to answer about characters yeah. in the game. Yeah. And you can uh, steal those again. Yeah. If you if you love this, the the questions from one game, but you really want to play D and D fifth, or you really want to play some other really obscure game which doesn't have those kinds of tools, then you can still steal those tools. And now you've got a game that's both got those tools and also got whatever other element you really loved. And like, so, so Mary Flanagan in Critical Place, she writes about uh, games as social technologies, mm-hmm. right? Where the, the point where uh, certain games, not all games, I mean, you can play a game of solitaire, of course. Yeah. Um, not really very social. Um, but you can have, the, the mechanics of games are, are, can be designed to create social bonds with each other, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Cole Whirl, in an article in Amazon Game Studies, writes about networks of effect, where the current, the, the for him, the main thing of a game is not the like play mechanics, but it's the the networks of emotional relationships that the act of playing together creates, right? And some games are better at that than others because their purposes are different, right? Yeah. Um, I love playing D&D, but D&D at its heart is a game about uh, exploring and fighting monsters, right? Much of the mechanics goes into that. And yes, there are mechanics for other things, but that isn't the focus really. And so stealing from games 
whose mechanics are designed more to make these networks of effect, to become social technologies, is a great way to still play the, the thing you want to do. Like, I really want to play a game which has tactical combat and 50 million D6s if you're playing like Shadowrun or something. Um, but I'm going to add these things from other game because, you know, I want to do these. And I mean, that's what mechanics are for. They're, they're just, mechanics are there to make you feel in a certain way, right? If mechanics were only there for numbers, then you'd be an accountant. Um, <laughs> So take them from other games and use them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah those are awesome points. Um, does anyone in the room have questions? Oh, uh, we got one really enthusiastic hand back there. <laughs> um, so this is a question to you as GMs. How do you handle a player who thinks they're a really good role player when <laughs> everything they do blocks everything else? Yeah. Okay. Like they are so into what their character would do that they block what other players are trying to do. They don't engage other players. They block the plot that you as the GM are trying to put on the table. Yeah. How do you handle those players? Yeah. Okay, so just to repeat for the mic, that's as a GM, how do you handle a player who thinks of themselves as a very good role player, but is spending a lot of time blocking other players at the table. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, why don't you start this time? You oh, oh so are we, okay, I, I, okay, I'll just chime in for questions. Um, <laughs> uh, well, sometimes I, I, I try and um, like subtly force other players <laughs> into their scenes. Uh, so not so subtle because, you know, um, but I'm like, oh, like, what if Bob was like Bob? Isn't that something that you'd be into? Like I think you'd be there, or like, or like, oh right, that reminds me of like Cat's b backstory as a fairy baker slave owner, um, right? <laughs> uh, where she bakes gingerbread slaves. Um, like yeah, totally. Cat played a fairy baker, but not a slave owner. Gingerbread slaves, everyone. Um, <laughs> uh, like and, and, and like like I, I think bringing it in now obviously. I mean, you can always go the extreme. There's always there, there's always the possibility at the game that someone will be like, no! Uh, but then that's assuming they're mean-spirited. And yeah. I, if that's the case, then you have to like actually talk to them and be like, bitch, please. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to assume that people aren't mean-spirited and that this person is just like really into it and yeah. getting very enthusiastic. Uh, and so I would be like, yeah, so this person like create the opportunity to be like, oh, yeah. Uh, the, the Jill is like he would be a great companion to bring along with this because Jill has the power to mind control people through cupcakes uh, and you might need that so Jill bring your like um, DIY traveling bakery with you and um, so like yeah I would say like one thing would be like yeah force other people into their scenes yeah yeah that that's good uh, I think sometimes I mean you know that, like that's a good way to do it and I do that. Uh, I think sometimes I'll try and modify when they're making too many declamations. I might say something like, okay, maybe it doesn't do quite that, but like, or yeah. like, what is that? But what, you know, you can also like look for consequences. Consequences are the hardest yeah, things. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. Okay, sure. You set the building on fire, but like now every other building next to it is on fire. fire. Yeah. Well, what are you going to yeah. do? And like, maybe we should go and cut to, you know, you know, Aqua Boy and he can come into the scene. Yeah. yeah. Um, a lot of times, a thing I've done uh, when I see people kind of hesitating or maybe uh, they come up with some ideas, I go, let me pitch you on something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like, what if your brother was in the apartment building? <laughs> yeah. 
And you know, if they're if, again, if they're earnest, they'll do it. That's cool. Oh, and just to build on that first point, um, it's so it's great. I've said this before. I'm like, oh, that might not fit the tone that we're looking for. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that, that That's a good work. way of saying. Yeah. It. And most people are like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I use the pitching thing just because it's like. It's clear that you have the option to refuse my pitch, but yeah. like maybe you won't. Did you have something to add as well? Yeah, I, I mean, just to, to once again to build on, um, I think that sometimes if mechanically somebody, you know, the game isn't working in a way that you can help reinforce that and they're not taking so subtle of a hint, um, <laughs> building on the bitch, please comment. Um, <laughs> You actually, I've actually sat down with people and said, hey, and I make it about their character and then not so much about them, but this isn't working and you're actively adversely affecting everyone else. So here's a couple options. You can choose to play somebody totally new and we can bring them in. We can adjust your character or what I really don't want to have happen is have you leave this group because I enjoy your presence. Um, And that gives them a certain amount of agency in kind of how that looks going forward as well. And there are absolutely some great ways to to phrase that in a way that doesn't, you know, lose you a friend. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you can say, you know, hey, I think you're a great storyteller, but the stories you're telling often feel like a solo experience, and I want to get you to engage more with everyone else. You can even, if, if you think they're appropriate, if they're the loudest player at the table, and everyone else is a little quiet and has a hard time sort of speaking up over them, try and recruit them. Say, hey, you're loud, you know what you're doing, you feel really confident about this, and these other players don't right now. I need your help to bring them into the it's story. Like a middle school teacher technique. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Relentlessly. Yeah. You know, I want you, like, you're going to be my, not my co-GM exactly, but you're going to be my assistant, and I really want you as this confident player to help raise the confidence of everyone else at the table. Mm-hmm. And there are, again, mechanics out there um, that reward you for spotlighting other people. Um, where you know, if you pass the spotlight to someone, then you get you know an XP advantage. or an advantage of some sort. Mm-hmm. And bringing some like if it's if you need a mechanical benefit for this, bringing in something like that where you can reward someone for not being the center of attention, and reward them for passing that to someone else can be a great way to still make that player feel like you know that they still have these strengths and that this is a virtue of theirs. Mm while also encouraging them to be kind of the kind of person that does enjoy bringing other people up to their level as opposed to just standing on top of them. Also, um, uh, most of the, the most mainstream games have the model where the GM controls most of the world and NPCs uh, and controls all the details of the world, but a very good technique is to ask other players. So for example, oh, you enter an inn. Bob, what is the most interesting dish on the menu in this inn, right? And that brings those players in. Or, and I've seen this happen even in games like D&D, Bill, do you want to play the role of the bartender in this scene where they're trying to seduce the bartender for information, right? And then that player becomes the NPC, and that's really fun as well because that also makes unexpected stuff for the GM, where the GM's like, wait, what? Okay, we're gonna run with this. The bartender is clearly a, a rakshasa in disguise. Great. Now we're gonna do Nail this. It. Um, and that is a great way of, even if that player is like kind of hogging the story, that's a great way of getting the other players at least still involved in that Still scene. actually playing a game. Yeah. yeah. Uh, did we have one more question? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I just want to know uh, what you guys feel is the most engaging character that you guys have ever created <laughs> and just like what uh, story they were involved with. Yeah. I've actually got a good one for this because I can think of it off the top of my head because she was a very recent character. 
Um, her name was Captain Juliet Harrow, and this is an Exalted game, Exalted 3rd Edition. So she's a very high power character, and she was the, the captain of a ship. And she was the oldest character in the party. And I'd originally actually invented her to be more of a mentor type figure. I wanted her to be the kind of person that, um, you know, was kind of like a little bit on the sidelines, but was kind of bringing all the other characters up. And I was actually, I was the obnoxiously loud character at the table who's maybe like at risk of stealing all the spotlight. So one of the very first things I did while I was playing her was go out and make a very specific relationship with every other PC where I was invested in their story. Um, so we had one character who was a very young kid and my character made that kid her apprentice. I said, you're going to be my captain's apprentice. I'm going to teach you how to run a ship. And now this character who was otherwise not connected to the story immediately had a connection. Another character had like just come out of this, you know, horrible, abusive slavery situation. And she said, I'm going to teach you how to be a real person again, because you've been trained as an assassin and you're bad at emotion. Um, and the other character uh, was kind of um, kind of royal brat. Uh, so my character was like, I'm going to teach you how to work in the real world. And they ended up with sort of a romantic relationship that developed. And just by in the first couple of sessions, going through and connecting to every single other player character, I'm tooting my own horn tremendously here, <laughs> um, every single other character immediately became invested in her. And she became the central character, not because she was doing all of these cool things, but because whenever she did do something cool, everyone else had a reason to care about it. And whenever anyone else did something cool, she had a really great reason to care about it. And that's, I think, what made her... Like, she's the one character that my group actually keeps talking about, so I'm, I'm assuming oh, I did well. Also, um, that's one of my favorite archetypes, the, uh, the old veteran who helps out everybody. Yeah. Um, and it really was, I think, those connections to people and the fact that every story that was happening had an emotional impact on her because she had an emotional connection to everyone that made her so engaging. And now I'll let other people talk. Oh, uh, is there anyone below 18 in this room? No. So, uh, so in... <laughs> In Justice Loving, Justice Loving is a Danish LARP. Uh, it's five days. It's about uh, queer people in New York dying of AIDS uh, at the start of the AIDS epidemic. Um, so I played the U.S. run, which was run in Minnesota last year. Um, I, it was a semi-pre-written. All characters are semi-pre-written. So I played a um, porn star prostitute who is super down on their like like you know is like dependent on everyone is like a druggy um, um, when it's been played before it's always like this like twinky sub guy and I'm like uh, no I'm a leather daddy um, but I'm still a porn star prostitute and who's like super down on his lock and is a druggy um, and I found what was really interesting and this was the thing I said about don't like pre-plan things because things always change um, Partway through the game, my character decided to leave the leather scene and then become a writer for, like, Out Magazine. Um, and so the costume I'd brought, which was half of it was my leather that I owned and leather from my friends that I'd borrowed. Um, so, like, I was like a harness and leather pants and stuff. Um, partway through the scene, I went to another player who I'm friends with and I'm like, can I borrow your wardrobe? And I ended up wearing, like, a pink shirt and, like, blue pants and, like, what are these things called? Um, suspender. suspender. I'm foreign. Um, <laughs> suspenders and, and, like... Braces. 
braces. <laughs> uh, and then I, that's that, and that was unplanned. That was because I managed in game. I had started making a connection with my friend's character, who um, was uh, playing the editor of Art Magazine, and I realized, hey, we're making friendship. And then you know, narrative events happen that I won't go into, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to transition. Uh, not gender transition because I was a theme of the game, but I'm going to transition my character, um, and I change. And that's a, I want to say this character because it's important to let like you not plan everything and leave yourself open to new things that could happen in the story um, because that's again you then get investment in that and things. I still wore the harness underneath the shirt, of course. Um, it's a fun harness, but um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I liked that change um, a lot. It was very interesting and it illustrates the point we're making. We've uh, only got about 10 minutes, 5 minutes left, so if I can get a couple quick points from the others and I think we might have had one more question. But yeah. Um, uh, on this question? Sure. Yeah. Or if you uh, don't feel you have a great example. No, no. I, well, part of the problem is like the characters I remember are the Brevera turns I did, which <laughs> may not be the on point, but uh, I've been playing a lot of Good Society and some of it's been fairly mutant Good Society. <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. uh, so <laughs> we did this game online uh, that was where the model was to take Tolstoy, not Austin, as the, mm. as the source. And uh, I had introduced a new character in the middle of the game and I had kind of hoped I would be unhappily married to one of the other main characters, but <laughs> then they all got married to each other, so... Um, <laughs> And uh, so Babette was like super nice and kind of religious and philosophical and didn't quite know exactly how to square all that. But I had a scene in the middle of the game. Uh, two of the characters were married to each other's friends, but they were actually super hot for each other. <laughs> I, I, it, was, it was queer as fuck. And uh, I decided what I would do is I would go to the one that I'd always kind of liked, but he had a hole in his heart that I couldn't fill and just be like, look, you don't ever have to tell me. Uh, but if you want to see Andre, who's you know my fa basically my half brother or foster brother, I, I could arrange that, and you know I'll just be in the garden, <laughs> oh. and and that act uh, where so that I had links with everybody else, but also was like taking this one central forbidden love story and actually making it sort of happen nice. was yeah, and and then the the last hour and a half of that campaign was just recriminations on all sides. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. <laughs> um, I'll actually go to a game of Good Society that I played as well because um, I adore that game. Um, and uh, uh, had a, a character who was uh, the exotic foreign woman from another land and uh, my goal was to get uh, two proposals of marriage throughout the game. So being an overachiever, <laughs> I got as many as I could. But uh, one of <laughs> Uh, one of the other player characters was um, a genuinely sweet, kind person who I had trapped in my web, and eventually I found out that he was poor. Uh, but I, he was like the one, like the best person among all of us. And so my my final act to him was uh, she whispered in his ear, you're a good man. And then she slapped him and said, I forbid you from ever marrying my rival who had money. And was there was that moment where all of a sudden the rival was like, he's mine forever. Oh. And uh, that just that sweet, tender yeah. oh. conflict. Yeah. Yeah, did we have one more question in the room? Yeah. yeah so, so just to kind of clarify the whole concept of this discussion about creating and engaging character, it sounds like based on your perspective as a player versus a GM, it sounds like there's two different answers. Because you're saying as a player, it doesn't really matter who you start off with because it sounds like your character will eventually evolve as you play. And you can basically adapt your character to whatever's going to go on. As a, DM, a GM or DM, it sounds like you're saying 
you kind of have to judge if that character is going to work with the story that's being built or the game that's being played. But is there <clears throat> is there a character that is there a point where you say this character is just not going to work? I I oh, think the, just to repeat for the mic, oh. the question is. Um, there's sometimes two different angles to this, where as a player you're trying to create maybe an open character who can adapt to the world, and as a GM you're trying to sort of judge if a character is going to fit in the story, and is there a point maybe as a GM where you have to say this character is not going to work? I, I, so, um, this is, I know it's original, something I said before. So I think it is, especially in a convention setting, and less in a homebrew where you have more time to discuss <laughs> and, and, and fix things. Um, fix is a strong word. Um, I think in a convention setting, it is kind of your job as the GM, if possible, to incorporate any kinds of characters, right? Unless it makes you uncomfortable or whatever, or it completely goes away from the tone of the game, right? So if you're playing um, uh, a fantasy thing game and someone's like, I'm gonna be a mad scientist, robot builder, you might be like, yeah, you can be an artificer, but, or you might be like, that doesn't fit, right? But it is really kind of helps out if you can incorporate everyone. The thing I said is if there are some character classes in certain games that have a shtick, that's their shtick, that will not really fit a story you're trying to tell. So for example, if you're playing Monster of the Week and you're playing the Hunter or the Hunted, right? Where you have a very specific nemesis monster that you're always gonna fight. In a campaign, that's great because a nemesis can keep showing up all the time. In a one shot, if you're running and you don't wanna make a nemesis, you have a specific idea, you might wanna not allow that playbook at the start because that shtick is not gonna that player is not gonna have fun playing a shtick that doesn't show up. Yeah, that's what I meant. I definitely like your point there. Of as a GM, you do have some responsibility to set tone, and obviously, especially in a game where you can get more input on tone, you can ask other members, other players, to input on what kind of tone they want. But um, I think that being clear with that tone up front does sometimes mean having to, at the very start of the game, say, no, I don't think that idea is going to work with what everyone wants to do, is kind of part of the responsibility of a GM. And uh, hopefully your players will be able to then say, oh, well, like I'm still keen on this idea, but I, I, I get now that it's not going to fit with this tone, so here's what I can do to adapt it. And that's part of the collaboration, where the GM is there to kind of make sure everyone works together, uh, and then it's the player's jobs to try and be creative and flexible within the GM or potentially the group's restricted parameters. And like one thing I... Can we actually... Oh, did yeah. you have something yeah. to say as well? Oh, no, no, I think okay. Sean yeah. is, is, is getting... Just want to make sure everyone had a chance to yeah. answer. Yeah. No, 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 you're great. Uh, one thing I explicitly do whenever I run party-based games at the start, like if I'm running Numenera or D&D &D or whatever, I say I'm not going to allow players who's who are going to like wantonly kill people and I'm not I'm not looking in this game to have intra-party conflict, right? Some games like Monster Hearts is all about intra-party <laughs> conflict, right? It's about like who can I seduce and then fuck up, right? Right? Um, while D&D is not often about that. So I tell people I will not, we are not looking for characters who want to steal things from the other characters and we're not looking for characters who are going to go around like, oh, there's a child, let me murder them. Um, <laughs> Right, yeah, and I, I say that, and sometimes those games are appropriate and fun, but if I don't want that, I find it very much okay to be like, hey, we're not going to do this. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're getting a wrap-up yeah, sign, yeah. so, uh, sorry, I think there's a couple questions we didn't get to, but uh, at least some of us will probably be available outside if there's any specific things you'd like to ask. Um, thank you guys so much for coming, and I hope this was helpful. And thank you to our panelists.
Yay. Thank you for moderating. Thank you. Yes. Yay, I am great. a moderator. <laughs> I'm so sorry for being very I'm You got your innings in? I'm so sorry because I was I looked at my shoulders and I'm like, I'm fine. I was just chatting with Nathan Pauletta. That's literally what I was 